You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. It's only at this time of stress, which in the first instance was induced by lockdowns and more recently by this energy crunch, that we see how complicated and fragile some of these interconnected chains are. In history, almost no energy source has ever declined. For September 14th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We've all grown accustomed to thinking about the global energy system as a market, and for the most part, it is. Producers of fossil fuels sell much of their output to regular customers under long-term bilateral contracts, and they sell some to the highest bidder on spot markets. This is true both for investor-owned companies like ExxonMobil and the other oil majors, and for state-owned or state-controlled companies like Saudi Arabia's Aramco, Russia's Rosneft, and Venezuela's PDVSA. Generators sell electricity to wholesale markets under a variety of contract types, including spot markets, long-term supply contracts, capacity markets, and auctions. But whatever the ownership and control of a producer is, we expect market forces to primarily determine trade, and that the hand of the government should be applied as lightly as possible. In the common contemporary parlance, we call this the, quote, invisible hand of the market, in reference to Adam Smith's formulation in his seminal book on economics, The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. But what Smith was describing was not at all what modern commentators use that phrase to mean, and interested listeners can find a link to a piece I wrote about that in 2011 in the show notes. Today it is usually used to mean the quote-unquote free market, where everything is left up to the agreement of buyers and sellers. That's not really a correct description of how things work, of course. There are lots of controls and regulations on the operation of all energy markets. But it is often contrasted with strong government control. Today, Westerners often think of China as the poster child of that, with its command economy, in which targets for investment, growth rates, production output, and so on, are all set out by the central government, and everyone is expected to meet them. That's not really correct either, as China's economy is definitely quasi-capitalist, but we'll leave that aside for now too. Now, there is a view, most recently embodied in the peak oil concept, that human demands are exceeding the productive capacity of the earth, what's sometimes called peak everything. We have discussed that view in previous shows, such as episodes 13, 22, 32, 54, 103, 136, 144, and 152. And that view was a core concept in my 2011 piece, which I will quote here. The modern interpretation of Smith's invisible hand, that the market can always call forth adequate resources at an acceptable price, is self-evidently not true. It is merely a misreading of Smith's theory, an artifact of developing economic theory in an age of energy surplus. Take that surplus away, and it doesn't work anymore. High prices can still ration demand, but they cannot call forth adequate supply. The connection between abundant cheap energy and economic growth, and the phase transition from an age of surplus to an age of less, continues to confound and elude mainstream economists. The implication of that piece was that more government control of the energy systems that underpin our modern economies might be required to keep it all moving. 
and 2022 has brought us a whole slew of government interventions that seem to support that idea. To be sure, the proximate cause of some of the supply shocks that we've seen this year was not fundamental resource shortages. Much of the tumult in energy markets this year can be pinned on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent reactions by the West, as we discussed in episode 171. But neither can the idea be entirely dismissed that declining resource quality and availability are closely tied to inflation through central bank interventions and loose monetary policy, and that all of it has resulted in prices that are becoming too much for the average consumer to bear. Listeners may recall that episode 158 was called Global Energy Crunch, and that conversation took place in September 2021, long before Russia's aggression had started to affect global energy markets, and it was mainly about some very fundamental problems of supply and demand in all sorts of energy fuels and other commodities around the world. In which case, the questions of whether a supply shock is driven by resource availability or by inefficient markets, or even to what extent what we're experiencing is a supply shock or a demand shock, becomes a bit academic. Whatever our preferred explanations, there's no question that recent months have brought an historic level of direct government interventions into energy markets with quotes around markets, and such interventions seem only set to expand, as governments around the world try to maintain economic stability and head off major destruction caused by forces that are largely beyond their control. Our friend and frequent guest, Liam Denning, tweeted a short list of them on July 6th. France nationalizing EDF, Germany bailing out Uniper, Norway ending its gas strike, and in the U.S., SPR release, gas tax holidays, and the DPA invoked. And he referenced an article that he wrote in April about how, quote, war and climate are pulling big government into energy in a big way. As ever, see the show notes for links to all of those points. So where is all this taking us? Can capitalism survive the energy transition, or are we headed into a new era? Our guest in today's episode has coined a name for it, Command Capitalism, and has written extensively on the subject for his research service. Kevin Book is co-founder, head of research, and the geopolitics and fossil energy policy lead at Clearview Energy Partners, LLC, an independent firm in Washington, D.C. that serves institutional investors and corporate strategists. He's also a non-resident senior associate in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and a member of the National Petroleum Council. He's a keen observer of the questions we'll discuss today, and I'm very pleased to have him join us for today's conversation. His firm's research is only available for purchase, so you won't find the usual references to it in the show notes of this episode. But you will benefit from his deep thoughts on these matters in today's conversation. Then in the news segment, we'll see how the EU is preparing for the worst in its supply of natural gas and looking to accelerate its energy transition. We'll take note of the damage caused by this summer's heat. We'll consider the case for sustained high oil prices, and we'll salute an exciting renewable energy project in Japan. But before we go to the interview, we want to remind our annual listeners that there are two ways you can share the Energy Transition Show with a friend or colleague. First, every annual subscriber has three share links per year that they can give to someone else. Each share link will give the recipient one free month of access to the show, which will let them listen to the two most recent full episodes. And second, there's a simple form on our website that you can use to give a year's subscription to a friend. To access both of these new features, just log into our website, click on your name in the upper right-hand corner, and go to the Manage Subscription page, where you'll find the Gift Accounts button. And if you're an annual subscriber, don't forget to post any open jobs you're trying to fill, or look at the current openings on our exclusive Members Only Job Board if you're looking for a new gig. 
As I record this, there are openings for research engineers, program managers, modelers, financial analysts, and more. But before we go to the interview, please note that we are now producing our shows a month or more in advance of their launch dates, which runs the risk of having current events render obsolete what was said on the show. That happened in a few places with this episode. For example, you'll hear me say in the interview that the Build Back Better Act didn't seem to be going anywhere, but two weeks after we recorded it, a surprise deal was forged between Senate Democrats that resulted in the $370 billion Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, that preserved many of the energy and climate-related provisions of the earlier act, and which was subsequently signed into law by President Biden on August 16th. Since we would not be able to cover the IRA on this show until perhaps two months after it became law, by which time every other energy and climate-related podcast and every news source will have covered it, I suspect we won't actually have much to say about it for now, even though it is the most significant advance ever for climate and energy transition policy in the U.S., For another example, you'll hear in the news segment that the EU had proposed that its member countries voluntarily reduce their natural gas demand by 15% this winter. That actually became a formal agreement on July 26th. Such are the perils of having to maintain a comfortable production buffer to enable my new lifestyle as a peripatetic podcaster. I apologize for any confusion that may result from it. Finally, just a quick reminder that from mid-September to mid-December, I will be in Costa Rica exploring how it is managing its own energy transition and working on stories about it to share with our listeners. So if you live there or have contacts there who would have expert knowledge about Costa Rica's energy transition and you'd like to put me in touch with them, I would appreciate the tips. Just drop me a line at chris at energytransitionshow.com. And now our conversation with Kevin Book, recorded July 15th, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Kevin, to the Energy Transition Show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Why don't we start by your provocative phrase, command capitalism? What do you mean by that? Well, so when we think about intervention into energy markets and capital formation of a command sort, what we're really talking about is the government taking a more muscular stance than we're accustomed to. But as a matter of framing the issue, you could also think about it in terms of the other side, which is so much has been said about China and market socialism. And really what you have is a command economy acquiring increasingly capitalist tendencies to its greater effectiveness as an economy, it seems. Well, the question is, what happens when our capitalist economy acquires increasingly command tendencies? And there are certain examples that you can point to in recent memory. As market democracies became uncomfortable with markets in the Great Recession in a very big way, we saw what happened when red-blooded, rock-ribbed Republicans noticed that there was a really big problem with the market solving for what was going to happen in the banking crisis. They intervened. In interventions, the Trump administration very notably made a deal with OPEC Plus effectively to curtail production to preserve shale production in the U.S. and also equally notably made a deal with China, which the Biden administration continued to execute, that involved fiat purchases essentially agreeing on the purchase of energy goods by a separate sovereign economy Mm. without necessarily market involvement directly. Mm. Outside the U.S., you know, another good example, Canada purchased the Transmontane pipeline and the province of Alberta froze production when it had trouble getting getting oil out in time to keep the price from falling. So really, you you see a lot of balancing happening by governments in recent years. Mm -hmm. Well, what are the roots of this command capitalism? I mean, how do we get to this point where government interventions seem so necessary? 
Well, I think part of it, there's a few different threads that we can look to in recent years. The Great Recession I've mentioned, obviously faith in markets may have been rocked by that at least a little bit. And from the progressive left, the fear that markets would be neither fast enough nor fair enough probably was exacerbated by that. But the fiscal stimulus that happened in the Great Recession, the spending of tomorrow's money on yesterday's factories, certainly stoked some protectionist sentiment and government got more involved in allocation in that context. The friction really between the slow moving linear and hierarchical process of our democracy and the world we live in today. Chris, you've always been able to order a pizza in recent memory by phone and have it within 30 minutes or your money back or something like that. Mm -hmm. But now Amazon can deliver things within hours. How can it take so long for, for government to do things? So there's a popular appetite, I think, stoked by the speed with which technology operates that we're expecting more to happen faster. Mm. And so that command intervention becomes something that there's actually demand for. And geopolitically, globalization, when we look at where we are today, sort of deglobalizing, we're really using the infrastructure that was created by so much economic linkage over the last four or five decades to project force via sanctions, export controls, tariffs. Yes, a substitute for military engagement, but also government getting bigger. Yes. And to your earlier point about the speed of things, there's a great deal of urgency around taking action on climate. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with how slowly that's going and starting to look for ways to speed it up, even if it means having to bypass markets and just go direct to government control. Yeah, that argument certainly factors in when you look at the question of whether or not a price sent by markets is sufficient to do the job. The economic answer is yes, this equilibrates around the answer you want. The political answer is yes, but when? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And time, of course, is a big part of the discussion. The recent memory that we've had, too, of government stepping in for first the Great Recession I mentioned, but three times as much fiscal stimulus, at least, in the G20 for COVID, and all the interventions in terms of what you could do and when you could do it. Elected leaders locking down cities and building ventilators and funding vaccines. And then you had the international ties, the world as we knew it, the trade and the just-in-time inventories around which our modern life had been built, strained by supply chain breakdowns and deglobalization maybe got a step up then. Mm. And industrial policy became the answer. You're not just going to decouple, but you're going to try to have this capacity at home because you can't trust what you couldn't get during COVID. And so that really has helped to engender more command capitalist thinking too, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, how has the Russian invasion of Ukraine exacerbated those conditions to accelerate this drift toward command capitalism? Well, let's think about the importance of Russia just in general. It's easy to to say, well, we're looking at oil prices falling right now and gasoline prices falling into the middle $4 a gallon here in the U.S., but the, the structural shortage... Which would have been considered a catastrophic price a year ago. Absolutely. Yeah. A red-letter number right. for any politician in office. Yeah. And still quite grievous to people who are driving long distance on low incomes. Yeah. But the Russian role in the global energy supply is hard to overstate. More than 5% of energy consumption, using BP's numbers from the most recent statistical review, is exports of oil, gas, and coal from Russia. And we're estimating at Clearview that about seven-tenths of one percent of the world's energy supply is now being pushed off the market. And you can move some fuels around. And so obviously oil that could have gone to Europe or that is self-sanctioned away from Europe is going to Asian markets. But one of the things that's underappreciated is that there's also bleeds across resources. So the LNG that would have gone to Asia going to Europe, fine. 
that means demand for coal in its place. The coal demand in Asia that is now increased by that foregone LNG, well, maybe there's a petroleum burn somewhere else in power to make up for that. So shortage somewhere can be shortage everywhere, and that can be pretext for intervention. And if you think about what sort of the Western response is right now, you've seen the European Union and the IEA come out with a number of recommendations for conserving energy. But at the same time, the Western response to this Russian invasion of Ukraine, this latest invasion, has been to say, well, we're going to try to degrade Russia as a major energy producer. The problem with this is that we have tightness now. It could become enduring shortage if it succeeds. Mm -hmm. Yes. So... There's a lot of recent government interventions we can discuss in more detail, but I'd like to start with some of the ones here in the U.S. I suppose the first most obvious one was when the Senate Democrats started calling on President Biden to release oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or SPR, starting around a year ago in order to bring down the price of gasoline and diesel. And as I said, back then, gasoline prices had shot up to $3 a gallon. <laughs> I mean, seems rather quaint now. But many U.S. presidents have wanted to do the same in the past, but there was always some resistance, mainly because that's not what the SPR is for. It's supposed to be used only in emergencies and not as a way to moderate prices. So this time seems different, both in the amount of oil being released and in the mere fact that it was done to reduce prices and not because of an actual shortage. And then after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it became more of an alternate source of supply. But then, of course, that led to another proposed intervention, a gasoline tax holiday, to try to reduce consumer prices temporarily. So would you agree that this SPR release is historically different than previous ones? I would absolutely agree. It's certainly the largest and also the premise. You know, there, there were presidents who would come up with very sort of convoluted reasons for why they were doing something that actually did have the effect of reducing price, but they would never say so. On November 23rd, President Biden said exactly that, 50 million barrel sale and exchange that he announced for the explicit purpose of, of lowering the price at the pump for the American people. But more than that, just the sheer scale. From November 23rd forward, depending on how you want to count it, there's been awarded through exchanges and sales roughly 178 million barrels. Actually, in terms of declines relative to when the, the new announced sales and exchanges started, about 110 million barrels. It's just such an enormous number when you consider the scale of a typical release was in the 30 million barrel range, and there hadn't been that many of them, and a lot of swaps and exchanges had been much smaller. Mm -hmm. So really, really very different. And just to put all that in perspective, global trade in oil is more or less 100 million barrels a day still. And U.S. consumption, I haven't looked at the latest numbers in a while. What are we at now? About 19, probably? You just use round numbers. Energy numbers are so messy, it's easier just to go with 20 and call it <laughs> yeah, one okay. fifth. Yeah. Right. And those have been enduring shares for a long, long time. U.S. has been about a fifth or a quarter of global oil consumption for decades. And so when you're talking about releasing close to 180 million barrels, that's a bunch. That's a big chunk, even if you're doing it over several months. And it has the ability to affect price, which it has done. Yeah, of course. I mean, you're talking about a price formation that's pretty pretty easy to understand. Oil supply can come out of the ground or it can come out of inventories. And strategic reserves are inventories that nobody counts. Once you've announced a release, it becomes part of the, the popular cognition. You can say, well, this is in the market now, and you count it. We had about 1.5 billion barrels of Western strategic reserves and similar, because some of them are in kind, but in any case, we've released and or on track to release approximately a sixth of that for this. It's, it's really quite a lot. Mm. And so, yeah, the, the price is, of course, higher 
than it was, WTI or Brent prices, on the announcement on November 23rd, but arguably less high than it would have been. We're about 300 million barrels short of the five-year average, according to the IEA right now. And so those 200-some million barrels of release mean the difference between being 300 million short and 500 million short. Right. But from the perspective of a year ago, when Senate Democrats were asking President Biden to release oil from the SPR to bring prices down from that horrifying level of $3 a gallon or three forty or whatever it was. And then fast forward to a month ago when here in California we're paying 7 <laughs> That SPR release starts to look like, yeah, okay, it probably did keep things from being another 20 cents or 40 cents higher, but we're double where we were a year ago. So what difference does it make? Yeah, every economist can argue what I just did, but in politics, explaining why the price went up when you released more strategic oil than all presidents in previous history <laughs> yeah. is pretty difficult. Yeah. Well, as another way of reducing dependence on Russian oil, the Biden administration changed the rules on ethanol blending into gasoline, didn't they? Yeah, this was fairly remarkable because it's a source of some contention that's been a rich part of the RFS doctrine. If you've been following the renewable fuel standards, I'm sure you have since, mm -hmm. since 2005 when it was introduced in law. Right. It's become a question of how to get more ethanol into the gasoline mix. And the Trump administration tried to introduce year-round ethanol blending and did so by interpreting regulation lost in court and was unable to continue. The president now, President Biden, has been able to waive Clean Air Act standards using a mechanism in law that is meant to be for emergencies, absolute emergencies where there's a shortage of gasoline or inputs into gasoline. And it's supposed to be geographically as limited as possible for a time period as short as possible, no longer than 20 days. He announced on April 12th that he would not only invoke this nationwide in response to war in Ukraine, but also that he would continue calling for emergency waivers for the whole of the summer, for the June 1st through September 15th period of time, when this would allow the blending of a higher percentage of ethanol without violating Clean Air Act rules because of the waiver. Mm. So really quite remarkable. Wow. Well, more recently, President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act, or DPA, to facilitate the production of first baby formula and then of transition materials and metals and solar products. That strikes me as the most significant departure from the previous uses of the DPA because it's a little harder to make the case that producing things like solar panels is in the interest of national defense. And I'm very curious to see how they go about it. Like, I wonder if the U.S. government will primarily act as a major buyer of those products or if it will play a more central role in the supply chain and the production of final products or what. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first, it is remarkable. It's remarkable because the Defense Production Act was created to bring war-fatigued industrial sectors back to the national defense in 1950. It's mostly been a defense logistics and procurement tool, and its intervention into energy markets and capital formation has been pretty rare. The Obama administration did a small DPA intervention for biofuels. The Trump administration tried to get the DPA to be a tool in first keeping coal and nuclear plants online, and then second to procure oil for the SPR during the, the April 2020 oil crash, but in both cases never went through with it. So now you have a president who's using the DPA in a number of different ways, and it looks like, to answer your question, it's probably going to be a combination of procurement and 
funding, but perhaps more the latter than the former. Title I of the law is really sort of the priority setting, the compelling, the production in existing means. And we may yet get an intervention on that front for refined products if the administration thinks that we're short and it's something that industry can solve by producing more. But Title III is where they do the spending, the loan guarantees, the investment in capacity. And so the Title III money is pretty flexible, except that it's limited to the amount that's in the discretionary fund under the DPA, which is our understanding is less than a billion dollars. So to really go further into transition minerals and metals and solar products, manufacturing capacity is probably going to require the passage of separate legislation authorizing the use of the DPA for that purpose. The Trump administration also tried using the DPA for energy purposes too, didn't it? In 2018, Trump tried to protect the coal and nuclear power generating capacity with the DPA. The Trump administration tried twice to use the DPA, and as you say, first for coal and nuclear plants, and second to procure oil for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, literally to buy a flow-in reserve by essentially buying and bottling up wells. Had they been purchased for the federal use now, might be part of the Biden administration's reaction in response to price. But in any case, neither of those initiatives was successful. The Defense Production Act money that the Pentagon controls is very special money in Washington terms. It's appropriated without year, so it's available in perpetuity until it's exhausted. And our understanding anyway, Clearview, is that the, the Pentagon was reluctant to cross Congress. Congress didn't want to fund the SPR acquisition on its own. It was something that Democrats had been very fervent about keeping out of stimulus and response legislation for COVID. And so the idea of doing this without congressional will could have put some of that non-year money at risk. And so our thinking is that maybe the Pentagon didn't want to do that so much then. But look, this is a different world. And with appropriations for the things that President Biden has directed the Defense Department to fund or loan money for, they could go pretty far. Well, not everyone is comfortable with this new approach with the DPA. I remember House Resources Chairman Raul Grijalva of Arizona expressing concerns about the DPA proposal. He did. And this calls into question whether the Congress will actually do that backstopping with additional appropriations for the purposes that the president might have envisioned. Grijalva was, I think, concerned about the environmental ramifications of mining these transition minerals and metals here in the U.S., particularly if it led to expedited or particularly lightweight permit reviews. Right. This is one of those things where I think we are not at war, the United States, ourselves. And so the notion of a war footing, as Energy Secretary General Granholm has described it, may be a convenient metaphor, but it's not actually the reality. We're just not at a point of a sort of a full societal mobilization, a, a levee en masse, that you could get the sort of buy-in that you might need from people who are very serious about environmental values and don't want to see them compromised. Mm-hmm. But even so, I mean, the war in Ukraine has certainly strengthened the case for the national security implications of electrification, particularly of transportation and deploying heat pumps and things like this. So it may not be like a direct ground war, but just looking at the impact of these major price spikes for not only all energy fuels, but also all sorts of foodstuffs and other commodities that are just critical is having a major impact on our world, certainly on the U.S. in terms of hit to the pocketbook. So I'm somewhat sympathetic to this war framing, even if we're not in a hot war on our own soil. 
Yeah, it's not our war, but we're definitely feeling the economic injury of it. Yeah. And this is, as you say, the electrification case is strengthened. The idea essentially is to de-risk the variable part of the transportation and other energy uses. So if you've done that by taking away globally priced petroleum risk, you've introduced this new fixed cost risk, which is the, the prospect of getting minerals and metals, batteries and components that aren't made here in the United States. And so to really truly use this as a, a way to mobilize transition in the national security argument, there has to be some buy-in for doing these things, if not inside the U.S., then in countries that we consider to be allies or friends, uh, proximate, nearshoring, that kind of thing. And again, this plays well into the, the deglobalizing, fragmenting world that brought us, well, command capitalism. Mm-hmm. It was in this context that a lot of this domestic manufacturing started to gain traction. The Section 201 tariff rate quotas for solar products, they're really part of the Trump administration's very deliberate trade policy-driven reshoring effort. That was something that you could argue was an outgrowth of the fiscal stimulus in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. We had tariff cases on solar in the early 2010s, and before long, it was a major front in trade war. So some of this does have, as you said earlier, deeper roots. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. European natural gas consumers, especially those in German industry, grew increasingly alarmed in July that Russia would not resume shipments of gas to the continent after a scheduled 10-day outage of its Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline for maintenance. On July 18th, the anxiety was heightened after the Russian gas company Gazprom declared force majeure, claiming that it could not guarantee gas deliveries due to extraordinary circumstances. Known as an act of God clause, force majeure is standard in business contracts and defines extreme circumstances that release a party from their legal obligations. Conflicting claims about the return of a turbine used in the pipeline, which had been sent to Canada for repairs, further muddied the waters. Nord Stream 1 did resume pumping gas as scheduled on July 22nd, albeit at only 40% of its capacity, the same level that it had been at before the maintenance outage. 
But the EU has been shaken by the uncertainty of its Russian gas supply as EU countries race to fill their gas storage ahead of winter. Brussels had warned that without deeper cuts to gas use now, some countries will struggle for fuel in colder months if Russia completely cuts supply, a scenario the Commission says is likely. And so on July 20th, the European Commission proposed that all 27 EU countries voluntarily cut their gas consumption by 15% from this August to next March, compared with the average over the past five years. So far, EU countries have cut their combined gas demand by just 5%. Nearly half of the EU member states expressed concerns about the proposal, and specifically whether the EU should have the power to make the targets binding. An EU plan further recommended limiting central heating and cooling in buildings and exempting coal-fired power stations from emissions reduction targets. Item 2. The EU isn't just targeting its gas consumption. On July 13th, the European Parliament's Energy Committee backed a proposal to cut its total energy use by 14.5% from 2030, up from the 9% proposed last summer. The proposal would also set binding contributions. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.